0: Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca-bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, and this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean Basin. I'm joined today with Dr. Katerina Volk for a conversation about the middle and later periods of Cicero's life, the Roman statesman, lawyer, and orator who lived in the first and second centuries B.C., Dr. Volk is a professor in the Department of Classics at Columbia University, based in the U.S. She is the author of many publications over her career, including the forthcoming book, The Roman Republic of Letters, Scholarship, Philosophy, and Politics in the Age of Cicero and Caesar, which will be published by Princeton University Press in October of this year, so 2021. Welcome to call, Katerina. Thank you. All right, so... A nice, broad question to start off the conversation. Who was Cicero?
1: Yeah, Marcus Tullius Cicero, as you said, was a Roman statesman, orator, and writer who lived from 106 to 43 BCE, and he's famous for many things. He played an important role in politics at a very turbulent time of Roman history, but he was also famous um, as a speaker, um, maybe the most famous orator um, in the history of Rome who very much influenced uh, the Latin language and Latin style for um, years and actually millennia to come and he was also a very important um, writer of philosophy who was very significant for the later development um, of Western thought
0: Okay and uh, in this conversation we're going to spend uh, most of the time And it's a bit arbitrary, but we got to start somewhere in his middle and later periods of his life. And we chatted about uh, starting the conversation around when the first triumvirate was formed. Can you um, summarize what the first triumvirate was, uh, why it was formed, and when it was formed?
1: Right. The first triumvirate is actually a modern term. It was not an official triumvirate, which would be a board of three men, but it was an informal power sharing agreement um, among three powerful Roman politicians, Julius Caesar, um, Pompey the Great and a man called Crassus. Um, And the Roman Republic was a republic where most of the power was yielded by the Senate. Uh, So the aristocracy, the um, the politically active um, upper class men, but um, Caesar and Pompey especially had uh, gained a lot of power, especially Pompey as a general, and they sort of made this uh, informal agreement that they really wanted to um, uh, control politics. Uh, among the three of them in a way that was not really um, uh, you know, provided for by the uh, unwritten constitution of the Roman Republic. And they pulled that off. And so while um, politics um, went on as usual and people were elected and the Senate met, pretty much those three guides were controlling um, what was going on at Rome. Um, And that really uh, led to a destabilization um, of the political system, which was already somewhat destabilized for other reasons. And then a year later, Um, led to a civil war when actually Pompey and Caesar faced off against each other and Crassus had died in the meantime. So the um, first uh, triumvirate, as it were, started in the year 59 when Caesar also happened to be consul. And then um, it continued for most of the 50s until the death of Crassus, um, but then um, evolved actually into a civil war between two of the triumvirates, that is Caesar and Pompey.
0: When the Triumvirate is believed to have been formed, I think you had said 59 Mm -hmm. BC, BCE, um, what would Cicero's position, uh, from a political perspective, have been at that point in time?
1: Yes, Cicero was already um, an elder statesman, so to speak, and he very much liked to think of himself in this way. He had held the highest office, the consulship, in 63 BCE, um, and had been very successful again, especially in his own opinion, uh, by um, uh, uncovering and beating down uh, a conspiracy, the so-called Catalinarian conspiracy, and um, saving Rome from uh, an armed uprising and from uh, bloodshed. And so Cicero expected to be, um, you know, to be an influential power broker to some extent uh, in Roman politics and to play an important role in the Senate and to be consulted uh, among important things. And so this first triumvirate really uh, threw a wrench into this kind of idea, um, because these were people who were, as it were, on the opposite end of the political spectrum, who, you know, obviously with this triumvirate, uh, were undermining the traditional rule of the Senate, which is something that Cicero very much believed in um, and so Cicero was very upset about this. Now it seems like um, especially Caesar, made overtures to Cicero and that was inviting him to some extent to support um, uh, the politics of the first triumvirate and if Cicero had done that Um, That might have been very nice for Cicero, um, would have added to his influence, um, would certainly have made his life much easier, but um, Cicero wasn't going to do that. And as a result, found himself first politically sidelined and then actually politically attacked by one of the followers of Caesar and the first triumvirate, a man called Publius Clodius Pulcher, who actually in 58 BCE, brought
0: about Cicero's exile. Okay, and we'll, we'll definitely want to get to the exile part uh, soon. Um, I want to clarify, so were people that served, so it sounds like um, uh, Cicero was serving on the Senate at this mm-hmm. point in time. He was a past and he previous was a uh, consul mm-hmm. of, of Rome. And what we're sen- were Senates as a position were they meant to be lifetime positions there was no uh you know there was no retirement from from a uh, from a senate unless someone wanted to uh you know resign or for some other reason but was it meant to be a lifetime position
1: yeah so it was not uh, i mean we might be confused right because um, there are senates today uh, famously the american senate and those are parliaments whose members are uh, democratically elected but the senate in rome was officially an, an well, an advising body, a decision-making body that, um, consisted of all those people who had ever been elected to office. There was the series of offices that um, people could be um, elected to. There was a so-called Cursus Honorum, which was the, as it were, the, the the steps up to the highest office. There were four offices. And once you were elected to the lowest office, um, you became a member of the Senate. And then you just stayed a member of the Senate. There were also property requirements. And there were some ways of excluding people from the um, uh, from the Senate. But and things also changed over time. But by and large, the idea that once you entered a political career and you were elected to your first office, you remained in the Senate. And since all the offices um, to which people were elected were only for a year, um, you couldn't really um, usually develop a lot of power during um, your office. So the um, elected officials, even the consuls, um, were not all that powerful. But the Senate was really, in a way, making all the decisions and calling the shots.
0: Okay, and this came up. I can't remember the episode, so my apologies for for that. But this came up um, with a guest on another episode that was more periphery to the actual um, uh, topic. But uh, the guest had said that uh, senators needed a million um, whatever the currency was at that time, uh, basically is what the, what, uh, the person said. So can, yeah. can you say more about that? Was there a certain requirement in terms of net worth to serve on the Senate?
1: Yeah. So it, the, the senators are the uh, highest class in Roman society. And so you had to have a certain amount of money um, to be a senator. So you had to have that certain amount of money and you had to be elected to office. In many, uh, in many families in Rome, this was running in the family. So, you know, people had been senators um, for um, a long time, so had been elected to office, or so, you know, grandparent had been elected to office, the father had been elected to office. So it was just totally um, clear um, that the next person would be elected to office too. Cicero was different. He was a so-called homo novus, a new man which meant that his no one in his family had ever been elected to office and thus had ever been elected in the Senate. So they had the right amount of money. But if you didn't also enter politics, then, you know, um, you could have all the money you wanted, but you were not a senator. So it wasn't just the money. It was the money and the ability to be elected.
0: Okay. Um... And to clarify uh, some of uh, what you shared, which was great earlier, about uh, what was going on at this point in time in history, uh, what was his, what would you describe his allegiance at at this point? And was he for the triumvirate or against or something in between?
1: No, he was against the triumvirate um, because he was very much a conservative in the sense that he was really um supporting the old as it were constitutional way in which the republic was run which is that as i just said people are elected to offices then they become members of the senate and it's really the senate that is making the decisions as a body and not strong individuals um, whereas this development of the triumvirate meant that suddenly individuals um, who had gained a position of power for whichever reason very often because they were um, gifted military leaders as all three of them were but especially Pompey and then Caesar as well with this war in Gaul um, and that these people were gaining um, too much power um, and this is something which to uh, upholders of the traditional senatorial rule uh, as Cicero that was really a red flag.
0: Okay. When and why did he go into exile?
1: So he went, he was forced to go into exile in 58, and this was really still a falling out from his consulship because as I just said, um, his crowning achievement in the consulship was the suppression of this conspiracy, which was in fact a conspiracy by upper class Romans, exactly senators, um, members of the same class, but um, a group of people around this man, uh, Catilina, who gives his name to the Catilinarian conspiracy, had plotted an armed uprising and apparently wanted to seize power at Rome in a coup And Cicero found out about it and had it suppressed. But what happened then is that a number of these Catalinarians had been arrested and the Senate was developing what to do with them. And there was a big debate. And in the end, they decided to execute them. And Cicero was very much in favor of that. And they were executed. But this was a big problem because uh, Roman citizens could not be executed without a trial and in fact they weren't usually at least members of the upper classes were usually not executed at all but they just uh, went into exile and that was that so to have roman citizens executed like that um, was a huge as it were constitutional problem and by the way i'm using the word constitution here a little bit loosely because rome did not have a written constitution but it certainly had established ways of doing things. And so the fact that Cicero had presided over this execution of Roman citizens um, was a big problem. Now, Cicero thought he was justified in that because they had a uh, emergency decree of the Senate, which um, he and other people interpreted as suspending this procedure, this legal procedure, which would usually have applied. But Cicero's enemies, of course, maintained the opposite. Um, and this uh, Tribune of the People, Popius Clodius Polker, brought a law saying that um, all the, anybody who had put to death um, a Roman c- citizen without a trial um, ought to be punished. And then um, Cicero realized that his life was actually in danger, and he left Rome and went into exile in Greece in fifty-eight, uh, being very upset.
0: Okay. Did other senators, because it must not have only been him that was supportive of that decision for the executions, did other senators go into exile? And then what also was the dynamic? Because by this point in time, uh, there's three people ruling, even though it might be not officially. Um, You can speak into into that if necessary, but but the triumvirate was in in existence by this point in time. So why was it was it only Cicero that went into exile? And then um, what about these three uh, people that are ruling Rome, the triumvirate by by this point, would they not have been supportive of that of the uh, executions?
1: No, I mean, they, so it was only Cicero who went into exile and because he had been the consul. Now, never mind that there was a second consul too, but it was deemed so unimportant. Okay. Um, and clearly this law was just tailor-made um, to target Cicero. The, the, the Clodius was, was clearly supported by the triumvirate in, in this doing um, and uh, especially Caesar, had certainly either really had, some, had had some sympathy for the conspirators themselves, but had also really supposed the, exe- uh, sorry, had opposed the execution at mm-hmm. this, uh, this uh, meeting of the Senate in 63, where that was decided. So this exile of Cicero was clearly either supported or at least um, tolerated by the triumvirate but what needs to be understood is that even when we talk about this triumvirate and say rome was really ruled by um, three men it was never an official rule and there was a lot of um, sort of flexibility and and vagueness and development so the three guys didn't always see eye to eye the the three men didn't always see eye to eye with the people who supported them so clodius um, for, for some extent of time really seemed to be a follower of especially Caesar, but then at some point he also did some things that Caesar did not approve of. And the same thing happened with this um, exile of, of Cicero. So this became a sort of popular and populist thing where also the people of Rome, you know, were stirred up and were very upset, you know, that citizens had been executed um and um clodius was a rabble rouser in fact he ran a gang there was this gang warfare going on in rome so it's really a crazy time and so uh, a lot of these senators the other senators are very intimidated Pompey, who had been friendly to Cicero before, um, was going along with this exile. But then, lo and behold, the following year, uh, there was a little bit of a shift. And, and at that point, apparently, the people on the triumvirate decided that it would be fine for Cicero to come back. Clodius was no longer tribune of the people. And then Cicero was, in fact, recalled and made a triumphant return to Rome. Um, And so by that point, it seems to be clear that the uh, triumvirate was behind um, calling him back. And so a lot of Roman politics is just extremely unpredictable at this time. And it's very much, it's not about institutions, not even this so-called triumvirate, but it's really about individuals who make little deals with other individuals, and then they change their minds again, and then they go together with that faction, and then something else seems more opportune. And so one Year, it's like, oh, Cicero, he's terrible, he has to go. And then the next year, it's like, oh, Cicero, he's so wonderful, he has to come back.
0: There were a lot of dynamics at play in this yes. period of time.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and it's, basically, it's very difficult to unravel this because the sources are largely Cicero's own writings. And of course, he's biased.
0: That's a good segue for what I'm going to ask next. Um, is any so he's in exile for for a while and I and uh, he came back. You mentioned that, but when he was in exile, do scholars know if he did any writings and uh, if so, what did he write about?
1: Yeah, we don't think this, that he did any writing in the sense of his you know you know rhetorical or philosophical writings. Though as soon as he comes back, he starts writing his um, great dialogue De Oratore um on the uh, on the origin maybe he was thinking about this that beforehand but it really seems that he was extremely depressed when he was in exile because what we do have is his letters and this is one of the amazing things about Cicero and this is why we're so well informed a about Cicero himself but b about this whole period is that we have over 900 letters largely by Cicero himself and some of them written to Cicero. So we have letters from the period of exile and we can tell that he is extremely depressed. Cicero is a very emotional person. And so when he was upset, he was really upset. And he has these very pitiful letters to his wife, for example, and his best friend Atticus and his brother. And he's really, he's also, um, he's talking about how upsetting this is, but he's also berating himself that he has let this happen and that he has brought this upon his family.
0: Did his, you sort of alluded to it, but I want to be certain, did he leave his family in Rome when he went into exile and is any, and what is known about uh, who went with him to Greece?
1: Yeah, he he left his family behind. So. I think he took a certain number of a certain entourage with him. Clearly, a a number of slaves he would have done, and maybe some other, um, you know, uh, followers of his. But it seems like uh, his most important friends and allies, and his most important family members, stayed behind in Rome to work for his interests and to work to bring out about his uh, recall. And then there were also issues that his property um, uh, was threatened. In fact, Clodius uh, took over Cicero's house and there was a big uh, to do when Cicero came back and he uh, got this house back, but there had been all sorts of damage done. Um, and uh, so it was really necessary to uh, to safeguard also him, his properties in Rome.
0: So coincidentally, uh, a, a similar ca- comment came up with a very enjoyable conversation I had with Dr. Seth Bernard uh, with the University of Toronto. We we're talking about construction in Republic Rome, and he mentioned, uh, I'm paraphrasing, but basically uh, Cicero was upset over his house being destroyed. So can you speak more about... Um, his house being dis- destroyed, or to to what scholars know to what degree, and uh, and then how how do we know in this case that he was even upset? Like, what do scholars lean on? Did he did he write about his upset? How how do you translate possibly him doing a oratory, uh, yeah. you know, into archival records?
1: Right, the house is a special case because Claudius is very clever. So he didn't just uh, take the house, but he um, took part of the house and made it into consecrated it into a shrine for a divinity. Uh, And the divinity he chose was the divinity Libertas. So that is the goddess of liberty, because Clodius stood for a kind of politics uh, which we call popularis so popular um, or if you uh, want to say um, uh, populist so um Claudius and and other sort of politicians of his um, persuasion were really arguing that they had the um, interests of the people um, at heart, so not the um, elite, but the people, and and to some extent, you can argue that this is actually true. Um, and so, uh, Claudius had always been depicted, Cicero, uh, as, as a kind of tyrant um, who put, um, you know, Roman citizens to death, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So when he took over the house by making part of it actually a consecrated space, he made it very difficult for Cicero later to reclaim the house, because now the argument was that this was no longer a house, this was actually a temple. And so Cicero actually had to go to court, or rather not so much to court, he had to appeal to the pontifices the priests, the College of Priests, um, which was a, a religious body that was a charge of religi- religious matters at Rome. And he had to actually argue that this consecration had not been legal, that it had not been done correctly, and that the temple was actually not a temple, but it was still a secular space. And he was able to make this case in a speech called the Domo Sua about his house. Um, And that worked out for him. So he he managed to do that. And it was very technical speech. He had to bring out all these religious arguments. But if he had not done that... And if the um, uh, the the pontiffs had ruled against him, then he could have done whatever he wanted. Um, He would not have been able to get at least that part of his house back. So we're actually very well informed about the um, affair of the house.
0: When uh, something like this happens um, so his house was actually taken over at some point. So it wasn't legally uh, he 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 challenged it, but there was contention over who owned the house yeah at one point okay so and it's fine if scholars just don't know this but i'm curious like what would have happened with his family in that case who were living in rome during the period where there's contention over who owns the home
1: i think we don't exactly know where they were but um, i mean they had a lot of other properties outside rome okay though there were also some issues there i mean we know that Uh, At least in one property, uh, there was some destruction which involved um, part of Cicero's library, which of course was very, um, you know, upsetting to him being a man of letters. Um, So it wasn't just the house in Rome, but I assume there would have been plenty of other places um, in the country where the family could have stayed and they could also have stayed with friends in Rome. But I don't think we know that.
0: Okay, okay. Um, So what... What is significant in his life then that happens next? So he returns from exile. He uh, got his home back, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, what's the next? Would you, what's the next? Would you say um, milestone moment in the history of Cicero's life that's worth discussing?
1: Yeah. So basically, what happens? So it's it's now we're coming to the mid fifties. Um, it's still the time of the first triumvirate. So Cicero is now back in Rome. So that's good, but he is still politically sidelined because the shots are still being called by uh, the first triumvirate, and also Rome is really sort of descending into chaos politically. So he's still very upset about that, but he does something very interesting. So he takes this opportunity where he does not have the same public voice uh, that he had before and puts his energy into writing. and so he first writes a three book um, work on the orator that i just mentioned which is about rhetoric but it's not so much about rhetoric as just the technical um you know little tricks you can learn about how to structure a speech etc but it's also about the um orator as a political um person who's playing a role in roman society and then in the second half of the decade he writes his famous um, dialogue, De Republica it's six books on the Commonwealth, where he talks about politics and um, constitutions um, and government and the ideal statesman. So you can sort of see that his political frustration translates into his writing at this period.
0: Okay. And the other book that you'd mentioned, the Diatore, when approximately did he write that? And what was the, um, was that one of the three books, the Diatoria, or did that come? Oh,
1: yes, the De Oratore has three books.
0: Oh, understood. So okay. This
1: is typically ancient works have multiple books, which really at the time meant uh, papyrus scrolls, right? I mean, if you, if in our books, you know, you can make a book very, very long, you can have a thousand page book. But if you have a papyrus scroll, you have to break it up. And then you talk about the individual books. So it's one, we would call it one book. But for the Romans, it's one work that has three books. So it's called De Oratore, On the Orator. And I think the date is um, 55, if I'm not mistaken, um, which is when it comes out. Whereas the De Republica On the Commonwealth, Comes out in fifty one, and that has six books.
0: A lot of times, uh, previous writings don't survive um, mm-hmm. for various reasons. Um, could be the the climate; they could be destroyed, etc. Why do you think so much of Cicero's writings have survived to the present day?
1: Well, I think because Cicero, um, on the one hand, really became the gold standard for latin Uh, this was the classical period of latin prose and cicero and to some extent caesar became the authors who were most imitated and basically the latin that is still taught in schools today is ciceronian latin so it's a it's a stylistic thing he was just a wonderful writer but then he was just such an important person both as a an orator so his speeches were models for for later speakers and then these prose works like on the orator and on the commonwealth and then later his philosophical works from the 40s um were just to some extent something new and something very special in in the history of latin literature and they continue to uh, to be copied and read but even there Um, you know this as you're saying it's never guaranteed that we're going to have some work from antiquity surviving and even though this work um, on the commonwealth was clearly incredibly important and we know that even in later antiquity uh, the fathers of the church like like lactantius and augustine read this and um, thought about it this work was actually mostly lost until the 19th century Mm. it was only rediscovered and only in very fragmented term in 1819 which is actually a very late date for a work from antiquity to be rediscovered and it really only um, exists um, in in very uh, curtailed form even today so even cicero doesn't always get lucky
0: I will have to work on the pronunciation that you use so well with that uh, series. Yeah. <laughs> okay, um, so uh, you mentioned earlier the uh, the new the new man using English yeah. terminology. The I believe homo no- novus mm-hmm. um, that came up as well in a previous episode on uh, Cicero. Is he referencing that? in the middle and later period of his life um as frequently as he may have been earlier on in his career
1: maybe not as frequently because by this point he has made it right so he has made it he was elected to office he was elected to which means membership in the senate and then he was actually very beautifully elected to each of the uh, offices on this courses um, at the earliest time he could be elected because there are age requirements for all the offices including the consulship when he was um, uh, elected at the earliest time that he could be elected at the first tribe so he had made it but he still has the sense um, especially in the 50s that he's not entirely Um, accepted by this old aristocracy and this really rankles because he feels that he is the person who is um upholding the power of the senate um, to run rome against people who sort of are undermining it like caesar and pompey you know the first triumvirate and that therefore he feels like these you know all the aristocrats should actually be grateful to him and kind of accept him into their ranks but he feels that that they are very sort of snobbish and standoffish to the extent that to some At some point more towards the middle of the 50s he feels much more friendly towards caesar because he was like well if these you know old boys don't want me then i can play with these like kind of crazy kids who are shaking things up a bit now he came off that uh, pretty soon because he caesar did a lot of things that he didn't approve of but he was in a way at this period he's kind of disgusted with both sides of the you know both aisles uh both sides of the aisle um in the political scene
0: so let's go there katarina to that next next stage um and work our way to the uh the civil war uh-huh. be- between pompey and caesar mm-hmm. so can you speak more about uh those events and uh, how cicero was responding to the events from hi- from what you believe his perspective was
1: right So one thing, sort of interesting thing about the whole First Triumvirate is that, so we're saying, okay, so Caesar and these other two guys are running the show. But actually, after his consulship in 59, Caesar goes off and is fighting his famous wars in Gaul. It's very interesting. So he's actually pulling the strings while he is in France and Belgium, so to speak. Um, But so he keeps on fighting these wars. He's being very, very successful. He has all these legions. He has all this power. And as the decade comes to the end, um, and Crassus at this point has um, been killed in a very ill-advised campaign um, in in the eastern Mediterranean. So it's now just Poppy and Caesar. And everybody in Rome is like, what's going to happen when Caesar comes back? Right? is he just going to dismiss his legions and is he just going to come back to rome as a private citizen and just you know whatever live happily ever after or is he going to demand something more and indeed what caesar really wanted is to come back to rome but um you know come back in a position of power and ideally to be elected to the consulship once more but there are issues you can't really run for the consulship um you know what if you're not in Rome so there are laws about that and you're also supposed to dismiss your army Um, and so people were getting increasingly alarmed in Rome that this wasn't going to happen and that Caesar instead was going to march on Rome and there was a lot of sort of negotiating going on in 50 um, BCE and um because Caesar's command in Gaul was coming to an end And he just wanted to basically segue directly into political power in Rome. And uh, the senators and uh, also Pompey were becoming increasingly alarmed at that. Um, And what happened was that Caesar put a kind of um, ultimatum at the beginning of the year 49. Um, The consuls and the Senate um, basically said no. Pompey at this point had broken with Caesar and was siding with the Senate um, and then Caesar indeed marched on Rome, entered Roman territory across the Rubicon, right? This is such an iconic moment. This was a tiny little stream that was the boundary um, to the actual Roman territory. Um, and at this point, Caesar should have dismissed his army and he did not do that. He kept his army, he marched on Rome and this meant civil war. And this was now obviously a huge crisis, um, and people had to pick their sides. um, And uh, the senators largely picked the side of Pompey, though some people also sided with Caesar. um, And there was a lot of uncertainty, and Cicero actually spent pretty much the entire year 49 dithering, sort of keeping up neutrality. Um, In fact, trying um, to work for peace because he was really horrified at this outbreak of civil war. But then in the end, he joined Pompey um, and um, well, didn't really do a heck of a lot of fighting, but did join Hmm. Pompey's army in in the civil war.
0: Okay. And so what happens next? And I know we need to eventually get to the, more the, the later, later, if you will, right. the later period of his life. And there's Mark Antony and such stuff. Right. So do you want to summarize then this period uh, right. of his life? And then we'll work our way into that next uh, big moment in, in Roman history.
1: Right. So in a nutshell, what happens is that Pompey is defeated. So Pompey is defeated in 48 at the Battle of Pharsalus in Greece, because actually Pompey and his army had to leave um, uh, Italy. And so Cicero has joined him in Greece, um, but when Pompey is defeated, Cicero basically decides to call it a day. I mean, he's had it with civil war and while other um, people are carrying on the civil war in other theaters in the Mediterranean, um, Cicero actually returns to Italy And is hoping to be pardoned by caesar and this takes a while but it Mm. does happen and caesar has in fact famously a policy of clemency that he is extending to his former enemies um, and really brings back a lot of people to rome um, who had been fighting against him under pompey brutus and cassius for example um, as well so caesar is now back in rome Um, starting in in late 47. But again, Cicero is in a very unhappy situation because now it's even worse than the first triumvirate. Now we actually have basically a, a sole rule by Caesar who is declared dictator. And so Cicero is even more isolated than he was in the fifties. And he again, though, does the same thing he does in the fifties, which is that he throws himself into writing. And this is mm. when he writes his famous philosophical corpus. So starting from 46 to 44, he is totally on a roll. He just produces one work on philosophy and on rhetoric still after the other. So this is really his, his uh, maybe greatest period of um, uh, of productivity, um and then of course famously um uh, caesar is assassinated right so caesar is assassinated on the ides of march in 44 um by a group of senators led by brutus and cassius um who i just said had been exactly in this sort of situation had been um pardoned after having fought against caesar in the civil war um and actually especially brutus having become very friendly with caesar But they decided that this was really untenable that one person um, had um, amassed all this power at Rome. They assassinated him. And while Cicero was not part of the conspiracy itself, he was very much, um, once it happens, he was very much in favor of it.
0: Okay. So I was going to ask you, uh, because what's very interesting is at some parts, it sounds points in uh, Cicero's life, it sounds like he's, with Caesar, other times he's against Caesar, other times he's with Caesar. Is that is that generally like the volleying that's that's happening when you're looking at Cicero's allegiance through uh, his life when Caesar is around?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think he is never entirely on Caesar's side politically, but there are certainly times when he gets along more with Caesar or when he sort of acquiesces in what Caesar does. So in the mid 50s, sort of the height or, of the triumvirate, um, and once he has come back from exile, he sort of acquiesces. And he kind of has, seems to have a reasonably friendly relationship with Caesar at the time. Now, again, Caesar is in Gaul at the time, but we have some letters. Between Cicero and Caesar, and Cicero's brother was also serving on Caesar's staff. And then when he comes back from the Civil War, I mean, I wouldn't say he's friendly with Caesar, but he just has to sort of put up with Caesar. Now you have to understand that Caesar is really the other great. Um, you know, not just important, um, you know, political figure um, of the period, but also the, the great mind to some extent of the of the period. I mean, Caesar was an extremely smart man um, and, of course, um, famous as um, a, a military leader and famous as a statesman, but he was also an intellectual. I mean, this is sort of a little-known fact, but Caesar, in fact, wrote a, a work on, um the, the latin language and uh, and usage which he dedicated to cicero and uh, caesar was also a great master of the latin language and while um cicero and caesar had very different views about latin style they had a sort of ongoing exchange about that and they had known each other all their lives um caesar is ten, uh, six years younger than cicero so i think even though to some extent, Cicero really hated what, what he was doing. He had a certain respect for the man.
0: You mentioned the Latin language, and I had this question earlier, and it slipped out of my, my mind, but it, it got cute again for me. Um, to what degree, so was Cicero, would you consider him uh, punctilious or fastidious around his writing about the, the Latin language? To, to what degree was he allowing it to naturally evolve as languages typically want to do versus trying to create borders and rules. Can you speak a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, that's very interesting. I mean, the sort of mastery of language it's just incredibly important in, in Greece and Rome in general. I mean, obviously an oral culture. So the, this idea that speech is the man is, is very widely felt. So the way you spoke, the way you presented yourself, um, that was sort of the, the way you were perceived. And if you were um, you know, an, an, an upper class man in Rome, you had to give speeches all the time. You had to give speeches in court. You have to give speeches in the Senate. And so this this linguistic mastery was incredibly important. But there were different schools, as it were. And since you're sort of talking about, um, you know, rule bound versus somewhat more uh, usage based. I mean, the way any. Have. I mean, all these writings are incredibly, uh, you know, they, they, this is not the con- conversational colloquial language that, that people were really mm-hmm. speaking. This is highly crafted. But even so, there was a movement at the time of people who wanted to the Latin language to be more uh, rule bound and more regular, um, to sort of um, use more analogy. Um, and uh, maybe get rid of some of the uh, more irregular forms Um, and clearly latin was far less standardized um, than you know any modern language is because we have dictionaries and we have tv and we have all sorts of um, things that work towards standardization and that just didn't exist but so caesar Um, his work is called De Analogia, so he was much more sort of in favor of a kind of rule-bound and very Mm -hmm. exact kind of Latin, which people feel like goes very much with the way um, Caesar himself was and conducted himself, and Cicero actually polemicizes against this in another work um, uh, on uh, on oratory he wrote, Um, in fact, during the time of Caesar's dictatorship called the Orator, where he basically more or less says, you know, I'd sometimes say things that I know are grammatically wrong, but they just sound better. Or this is the way people are speaking. So I'm not going to, you know, basically let myself be told uh, by books how I have to speak Latin, but I'm going to speak Latin in a way that is maximally um, effective
0: can you speak about the second triumvirate and then how does uh and then bring up any allegiances and any writings in that in that answer that's known about caesar uh and how does he end up dying
1: yeah so basically what happens is that after um caesar is assassinated um someone like cicero was maybe hoping that the assassins brutus cassius and al were able to bring back the traditional um, you know, senatorial role, good old republic, the way Cicero liked it, but they signally failed in doing that, and it actually looked like they didn't have a plan, but there were, of course, also other agents, so uh, Mark Antony had been Caesar's right-hand man, um, and he was sort of, um, you know, positioning himself for power, and then Caesar, in his last will, had um, uh, had um, adopted his young relative, Octavius, later called, Oct- uh, called Octavian by modern scholars and later famous as Augustus, who was this young 18-year-old who also arrived at the political scene in Rome. And then there was again this sort of typical power struggles, which um, again devolved into Um, uh, civil war, very complicated, very messy civil war, um, with shifting allegiances, with Mark Antony here, Octavian there, the Senate there, Brutus and Cassius somewhere else. Mm -hmm. Um, And um, so it became very, very messy and very nasty quickly. Mm So by 43, again, we have civil war. And here, it looks like Cicero made a big mistake. Cicero really hated Mark Antony, and thought that Mark Antony was the greatest threat to Rome, Um, and therefore uh, Cicero backed young Octavian, um, and thought that Octavian would be a great counterweight to um, Antony, and also because Octavian was young, thought he could just influence Octavian. Um, And so while he went out and gave a lot of very aggressive speeches against Antony, these are the so-called Philippic speeches, um, he was supporting Octavian, even though people like Brutus and Cassius thought that was a horrible idea. Uh, And then lo and behold, um, while it looked like um, Antony was already beaten um, in battle, in late 43, um, uh, Antony actually managed to get Octavian over to his side. So they had previously been fighting against one another, but then they entered an agreement. And again, there was a third man, an, a man by the name of Lepidus. And so this is now the second triumvirate. And the second triumvirate is actually a real triumvirate because they um, get an official commission um, that they are now a um, commission of three Men, and they are the three men, um, ironically, who have the job of reconstituting the Republic, which they never did, but they ran the Republic mm. into the ground, if you want. And as soon as this happens, um, they get together and draw up a list of their enemies who they want to get rid of. And Antony, of course, the first person he can think of is Cicero. And so Octavian even though Cicero has been promoting Octavian all this while, basically ditches Cicero and allows um, Antony to put Cicero and not just Cicero, but Cicero's entire, his, his, his brother and his nephew and his son onto this so-called prescription list. So the second triumvirate uh, starts off on this very bloody note. Does something that say caesar never did i mean caesar was famous for his clemency but the first triumvirate is really um, starting out by um, sending out assassins to have their political enemies killed and this is what happens to Cicero um, on, I believe, the seventh um, of December, forty-three, um, he knows that um, his life is in grave danger. He is out in one of his uh, country villas, and then he's he's fleeing. He's being carried away in a litter, but then these assassins um, catch up with him, and there's a sort of uh, great story how he nobly, um, you know, ag- agrees and just sticks out his head. Um, you know through the whatever from his from his litter and they cut off his head um, and they actually bring back his head and they bring back his hand to Rome and and nail them to the rostra which is the speaker's tribune on the Roman forum Um, and this is pretty much all Antony's doing as a kind of revenge for Cicero having um, opposed him so much in the previous months.
0: You covered a lot of ground there. Uh, we, we had to circumscribe the, the, the time. You did excellent covering a lot of ground in a very short period of time, Katerina. Um, Cicero's life, how many marriages was he believed to have had and how many children?
1: Yeah, so he was married for the longest time to, to his first wife, Terentia. Um, who supported him while while he was in exile and then somehow in the 40s there is a falling out and there may have been some trouble over finances um and he sort of stopped trusting her and he got a divorce um and then somewhat notoriously he got married very quickly to a very young woman publilia Um, and this marriage broke up incredibly quickly um, and one of the reasons seems to have been that um, his daughter died. Um, his, his daughter, Tolia, um died uh, in childbirth, tragically. Um, and Cicero was incredibly upset about that. And that may have been another reason that inspired him to write his philosophical works. This happens in early 45, um, because he was really comforting himself with his philosophy. But there was a sort of sense that either this woman, Publilia did not react well, you know, to this um, death of her stepdaughter, who frankly may have been the same age or even older than Publilia herself, or Cicero just really couldn't extend like, this idea anymore that he was now gonna have this new wife, even though previously he wanted it. And so then he got divorced very quickly. So he had one very long marriage to Terentia and one very short marriage, to Publilia. He had this daughter whom he just adored, and who was like really um, devastated when she died. And he had a son who was also called Marcus, like Cicero himself. And he had a somewhat. I mean, he loved his son very much, but I think there was this, a, a typical dynamic that the son was a little bit overwhelmed by his famous father who, you know, wanted him, you know, to also, you know, enter a political careers, study a lot, know mm. about rhetoric and know about philosophy. And I think young Marcus was a little bit chafing under this, but as it happens, young Marcus was very lucky because he was not in Italy when the prescriptions happened. So Cicero was killed, Cicero's brother was killed, Cicero's nephew was killed, but the young Marcus was studying philosophy in Athens. And he actually later joined um, the army of Brutus and fought against um, Octavian Augustus at Philippi, but was also pardoned later on and actually went on and had a career in Rome and uh, seems to have had a happy life. So it's the, the young Cicero who's really the survivor in this story.
0: Okay. A closing question, if Cicero's writings didn't survive, which happens in a lot of cases, so if his writings hadn't survived, how do you think uh, you perhaps or scholars collectively would have looked at the history of Rome uh, differently?
1: Yeah, I think we would lack a lot of information, first of all, about this period. Um, we would really lack the backbone of what Latin literature is. Um, I mean, it would be this gaping hole, as it were, and we would certainly not, I think, think of Cicero as a very important person because in historical sources, which also happen to be uh, later usually, but historical sources that talk about this period, I mean, they do talk about Cicero, um, we have also a biography of Cicero by Plutarch. But, I mean, he was on the losing side of history. Um, you know, I mean, he was not one of the Caesars or Augustuses um, of history. And so I think we would not be in a, in a situation really to um, appreciate his, his importance.
0: I've really enjoyed speaking with you today, Katerina. Thank you for coming on the show.
1: No, thank you for inviting me. This was a lot of fun.
0: Okay, everybody, again, uh, Dr. Volk's book that I mentioned at the start of the episode that is forthcoming October of this year, so 2021, published by Princeton University Press. It's titled The Roman Republic of Letters, Scholarship, Philosophy, and Politics in the Age of Cicero and Caesar. Katerina and everybody listening, as always, wishing a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Bye.